welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Joining us today, we have Lisa Jane Naidu. Lisa Jane's the Clinical Effectiveness Need for Child Protection at the Scottish Ambulance Service, based over in headquarters. But she's previously done some pretty diverse work, having been a health visitor and before that an adult nurse in cardiology. And she's here to chat to us today about pathways around child protection and the logistics of how we act on concerns. Lisa Jane, thanks so much for coming on to chat to us. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for the warm introduction. That was fantastic. I need to take you everywhere with me. (laughs) (laughs) I guess most folk who have been involved in pre-hospital care for a while will have gone into a house and felt that kind of uncomfy feeling when something's not right. And it's always a bit of a worry when kids are involved. But there's not always, certainly to me as a basics responder, there's not always a clear way to act on it. You've obviously taken over this job reasonably recently. What was the system before you kicked off and looked at pathways? Whenever there's children involved, it becomes, you know, everyone's fears become heightened, don't they? And I think that that's fine. Every child has the right to not be at risk. And previously within the SAS reporting system, we were reporting concerns through our DATEX, which records clinical incidents and things like that, and escalating them through 999 calls or out of hours out of our social work and things like that or just regular social work hours but since coming into position myself and my team have really tried to reevaluate how we are escalating these concerns and make sure that it falls in line with the national practice model and the GERFIC principles and escalating it through you know relevant notification of concern forms and things like that. And I'm sure most of the listeners will have an idea of what GERFIC is but can you just take us through the bones of it? GERFIC stands for Getting It Right for Every Child, which is the national policy that informs all practice in relation to child health and development. So it's used not only by ourselves in health, but education and health and social care. And basically the principles and values are underpinned by that of human rights and the United Nations Conventions of the Right of the Child. And the basis of it is to ensure that we can create single or multi-agency contexts in any assessments that we're doing with children. And it gives structure for professionals to analyse what it is they're seeing, the risks and the needs and the concerns that they have when they are in that child's presence. It also provides that really robust universal assessment and by using the Shinari wellbeing indicators, which are outlined in GERFIC, which are safe, healthy, active nurtured, achieving, respected, responsible and included. There we go. It allows us to create that universal language and the context around what it is we're seeing. And it makes it then easier for professionals to unite and inform what they're putting in so that it's the right care at the right time, the right interventions. So GERFIC is, in some sense, is pretty unique that we've got folk from health and from social and from education and really across the spectrum, all working off of a single 
document and a single set of guidelines and that's pretty powerful in terms of gathering information and, and having that shared decision making. Yeah, it's a fantastic process and it allows for that dynamic assessment. And I think one of the really important things for professionals to remember is each agency is always guided by the five questions that are within the national practice model. And those are what is getting in the way of the child's well-being? Do I have everything that I need to help and support this child or do I need to look out with my service? And then what intervention can I put in place right now to support this child? And as first responders, often we may convey people elsewhere to a place of safety, which again is a unique response. And what else can my agency do? And what additional needs, if any, is identified from others? And that really signposts you where you need to go as a responder for support. I think obviously within our response just now, we always look for support from health and social care partnerships. And that's absolutely fine because they become the lead professional and the guiding force in ensuring that that child's needs are met. Listening to those five questions, the one that to my mind is a big sticking point, particularly for basics responders, is that having information. Because generally we'll be tasked to a, a treble nine call and you end up in somebody else's front room, maybe not seeing the child as a patient, but becoming aware of them. And we don't have access to that child's records. We don't have access to information about them. And it's a stumbling block in terms of getting it right for the child to steal that phrase. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to remember that you don't always have to refer okay, you may not have the child's details. It might not be appropriate to ask that child's details, but you have that address and that information. And there's a contextual safeguarding model that would look to refer addresses, places, parks, which is really relevant when you look at child safeguarding from a teenage perspective, because you think of the risks that are posed to children actually are normally out with the familial home as a teenager, because you're at greater risk from your peers and things like that. So I, I think... Yes, it's great to get as much information as we can, but I wouldn't stop that from me escalating a concern. Even if I didn't have that child's details, if I had an address, that would be a strong enough referral for me to put in. So I wouldn't want anyone to think, oh, it's not worth me putting in a referral. I don't know that child's name or date of birth. We can work with as much information as you can give us. And I guess the other hesitation is not wanting to refer things in error, is feeling that you're perhaps over-egging things or that you're seeing things on a bad day and making a snap judgment about what's going on. And it feels like a fairly hefty intervention you know, to involve other agencies, other services, when this could be nothing at all. Yeah. You know what? I don't think it should ever be underestimated. The emotional toll that raising concerns can take on staff It is so nerve-wracking. Nobody wants to get it wrong. Nobody wants to look silly. And I think when we think of child protection, we kind of jump to the conclusion that if we raise a notification of concern for a child, it will automatically result in a child being removed from that family home. And that weighs really, really heavily on people. And the main function of social work and raising concerns is actually to keep the child at home with the family, but in a safe manner. So I think it's really important to remember that raising a concern, be it little or large, is actually about putting the initial supports in to keep that child safe. Because child protection refers to the early intervention and prevention of harm to a child, rather than actually the, the harm taking place before the intervention's put in. 
the stories we hear about in the press are always around children being removed from home or that you know that uh, the terrible end of the spectrum but actually there's a lot that we could do in a sort of prevention model that that stops kids from ever getting to that end absolutely and that's our main function that social work's main function is to prevent us getting there and obviously the things in the media that we hear are harrowing and weigh heavily on the community but certainly within raising a notification of concern it doesn't automatically escalate to child protection involvement and for instance if staff raise a notification of concern there's different routes that it could take for instance the information might just trigger an initial referral discussion which is where social work police and child protection services would meet from that health board and they'll collate all relevant information regarding that child and the wider support network. So it's really a chance for multi-agency collaboration there before any decision-making process is, is taken into account. And they might not trigger any further action. It might trigger a child protection case conference where all relevant named professionals sit around the table and discuss how to support this child. It may escalate to a child protection investigation, but again, that's just about informing robust assessments and putting in place support surrounding the needs of that family and the child. So they do assess children individually, but also as a family, what can we put in to support this family? And I guess we were chatting about it offline before this recording, but we're in a pretty privileged position in terms of going in as an emergency response to a home and seeing it in its natural state rather than some agencies where a bit of warning means that uh, stuff might get tidied up or polished up. Absolutely. So in previous roles, as you've already indicated, I was a health visitor. So there was often times where families just didn't want to engage with my service. And that's quite a common theme in relation to families at risk or children at risk. They might not want to engage with health or education or social work services. But the nature of our call-outs, as you've said, our 999 call-outs, they will engage then and you have open access to someone's family home. When I used to go to people's family home as a health visitor, you were in the hall and normally into the front room and that was it. That was all you've seen. Doors are closed, so you never get to see the rest of the house or what's going on. So we are really privileged to have that insight into people's family homes and family lives and they are calling you at a time of crisis for them so they don't have that forethought to set the scene or to tidy things up. They, they desperately need your support so they will engage nine times out of ten. I guess there's also a part of this is that there's a burden implicit in that that means that we are currently seen as a safe, non-judgmental emergency response and I guess there's always a slight worry that we could taint that reputation if folks see us as an extension of child protection or social work or the police or all the sort of negative aspects of child protection? You know, Dave, I don't know how we step away from that. I think it's mostly about education and empowering our staff and the people that are going into these family homes. I think, like I've already indicated, child protection isn't about removing children. That's never a social work's main function. And certainly as responders reporting this, that's not what we're looking for. We only want to safeguard. And I think empowering staff is really important to not be scared. It's terrifying, but through clinical supervision and open discussions and being aware of what it is you're reporting and the rationale for why you're reporting it, I think is the most supportive way to, to promote it. I think each 
professional has a responsibility to report, but Joe Bloggs on the street also has a duty to report child protection concerns. And I know our staff are out there doing their best. So I feel confident that they do report and escalate where it's appropriate. Okay, so let's walk through a hypothetical scenario and just look at the pathway, I guess, that these things might take. So if I'm going to pluck an example out of the air, we'll have a treble nine call for an adult in the family home and a basics responder is tasked in advance of the ambulance service response, gets into the home, deals with the patient, but flags up some concerns to the crew that come to back them up. What would the expected pathway look like from there? So presently, what would happen is the crew or the first responder would be able to email our public protection mailbox with the details of the concern and the call number. And from there, what would happen is we would highlight a DTEX and fill out our national reporting form, which is a notification of concern form. This is obviously if it wasn't an immediate response required. If there was an immediate response required, we should have said we would phone 999 and out of our social work. Absolutely. But if it was a non-immediate response, we seek to respond and report these within 48 hours, which is kind of the national norm. So what would happen is... Once the DTEX is completed by our staff, we would complete the notification of concern and email the local authority. And what I have been doing since coming into post is I'll contact the local social work department to try and get feedback to see where they're at with it, if it's been allocated to a social worker, if it's proceeded to an initial referral discussion, or they have went down the the route of child protection investigation. And then provide one-to-one feedback to those who have reported it and also then offer them that one-to-one training or support and clinical supervision if they've got any concerns relating to what they have reported. Really interesting. So we've got a kind of inbuilt feedback loop so that a lot of clinical interventions that we make, we look after them, we send them off to hospital or we leave them at home and there's no kind of feedback about how that job progresses. But it would be great for these pretty emotional decisions to have that feedback built in. Yeah, when coming into post, I've thought is really, really important. And it's something that I really needed as a health visitor as well, because it's important for someone, you know, you're wondering, have I made the right decision? Was that the right call? And it's really reassuring to have someone phone you and say, you know, thank you for what you've done. This is how it's progressed. And I think especially when we're seeing feedback from social work departments saying, oh, that was the good call, it's proceeded to child protection investigation, you know you're on the right path, you know you're doing the right thing. We'll make sure that the email address goes up with this podcast so that we spread the message, I guess, that that's the pathway that's now in operation. And I guess reinforcing that feedback loop that you'll find out a little bit about where things have gone from that initial discussion. And my colleague and I are trying to support all staff with training and we're providing roadshow training so where we're just traveling obviously we support nationally so we're trying to come around and support everybody nationally as well as developing really robust e-learning tools and seven minute briefings and things like that but happy to share any information i have with you as you said back at the beginning it's key that if there is a genuine sort of acute concern for the welfare of the child then 999 and through police or out of hours Yes. And I think as well, it's important to remember that we more often than not transfer a child to a place of safety. And we have that option of escalating care to any when we go on colleagues, which is, again, something that lots of agencies can't do. Absolutely. And certainly 
when there's concern about the child and the child was a patient that you were sent out to see, there's normally a reason that you can need to take a patient into hospital. <laughs> if you need one, this, well, yeah. <laughs> you can get pretty creative. That's it. And I think that's a really lucky position to be in. You know, there's times where potentially I've left with that sick feeling in my stomach and then you have to go back and have to regroup. Whereas I think we do have that benefit where there's someone else coming for support and we might be able to say ah right okay let's flag this one <laughs> and get them in <laughs> but it's interesting you saying that unhappy feeling after a job and sometimes it's not till after a job that, that the unhappy feeling surfaces and that twitchy feeling of oh actually maybe i should have done something about it the email option gives you that kind of halfway house if there was nothing that was a complete red flag trigger need to do things now then an email could be a sensible way of, of referring that on after the job was complete. Yeah, we also have a health hub phone line within the Scottish Ambulance Service, which is services from 7 to 5, Monday to Friday. And paramedics can call in there directly and make a referral as well. So there is two routes to escalate concerns. And I think sometimes even having that person on the other line, and that means you're not leaving that job entirely. You know, you can be on your way back to base and making that phone call and saying, this just doesn't sit right with me. And that also gives you pathways into myself and my colleagues who can support over the phone. And I guess the other thing with a purely basics hat on is within the basics responders set up, we have our responder support clinicians who have been responding for a, a significant length of time and have built up some clinical experience and, and are a good sounding board to talk these jobs through with. Absolutely. You know, most practice is informed by our experiences, isn't it? And I think the nature of our jobs is built on reflective practice and, and it's, it's always good to get a second opinion. Um, I don't think anybody would argue with that. And then there's clearer routes for escalation there as well because you're diverting to someone who has that experience and has been doing this job for a long time. And often it's even just sort of forming it into the ability to describe to somebody else, actually, you think, no, this is something that needs to go up the chain. Yeah, I think as well, sometimes it's the probing questions. Like you're saying, when you articulate it, there might be something that I'm thinking, like, this was just bizarre. And I articulate it to you and you say, oh, oh no, I, I can't see it from that standpoint. So there's four main categories of abuse that are cited as a rationale for why a child is on the child protection register. So the four main categories would be physical abuse, physical neglect, emotional abuse and sexual abuse. And as part of our referral form at the Scottish Ambulance Service, we ask crews to indicate what area of concern it is. And that, I think, can really focus the nature of the referral because you're thinking about it within those four domains yeah and then it makes things a bit clearer a bit more concise yeah i guess it crystallizes that concern into the worst case scenario and it may just be a suspect thing and i think well when we think of physical abuse physical neglect you're thinking of the great extremes but sometimes even if it's a hypothetical you're sent to a, a house where it's an adult caller but there's children present you know the child's in front of the television in a, a play court and there's been a raucous party all weekend and someone's had an overdose, that's neglect. Yeah. But because of the circumstances around it, we might not think of that as extreme neglect, but it's something that when you put it down on paper, you can clearly see that's neglectful. Absolutely. And again, kind of comes back to that privileged position of by the time a health visitor or social worker came round, the chances are that would have been made to look significantly better. But yes. we've got our foot in the door 
at three in the morning when things are going wrong acutely. Yeah. And our new referral pathway and our new referral form has actually really opened up a lot of conversation with our agency partners as well. So we've had a lot more involvement with social work and things over the last couple of months because we're really putting out there and saying, you know, can we have feedback for this? What happened with this? So that's been fantastic. We basically spend a lot of time talking about the importance of multi-agency integration and co-working and shared strategies and all that sort of thing. And that really kind of feeds into that same language. Yeah, definitely. Now, we've been asking all of our speakers to give three takeaway top tips for basics responders going out to jobs to carry in their heads. What would your suggestions be around the child protection and those pathways? So first off, it's just to go with your gut. And I want you to think of if if you're feeling scared or intimidated in a, a situation or environment, imagine how a child feels within that environment. Secondly, I would say don't ever assume that somebody else will escalate concerns on your behalf. And it doesn't matter if it's one referral to social work or six referrals to social work. They all are still relevant and there is power within those referrals. And finally, we're very risk averse. And so we should be, especially in relation to child protection. So if there's any debate, escalate it and don't disregard your own feelings I think it's all right to sit with these feelings of unease and to look for that support from your peers and your colleagues to say, no, that was the right decision. So don't ever disregard your own feelings in any situation. It's Jen, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for kind of walking us through that process. And and actually, I think allowing certainly my fears that it's going to be horribly complicated and involve lots of forms and having to use systems that we don't have access to. But actually, it's clear, it's structured, it's easy to access and the reasons for not doing it kind of melt away once you look at it. They do and everyone should feel confident in their abilities and their risk assessment process. I never want anyone to say, you know, Lisa, I never reported that because I, I felt it was too small. We're the jigsaw. We're that missing piece in that jigsaw puzzle most of the time. So yeah, report it, escalate it. I'll do my best to support and give anyone feedback where they need it. Fantastic. And we'll put some links up with this podcast to some of the things that you've been mentioning in the email addresses. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for your time, Dave. It's been an absolute pleasure. Not at all. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.